couple weeks ago when Tony and I were in Tennessee visiting our son Ryan, as I shared with you all uh, last week, we, had, uh, we were up there for, I guess, about four full days. And so we had some free time during the day to go and do some things around Nashville and, and just, just have a little fun while we were there. And uh, one of the, the, the Monday, I believe it was, we went uh, to the Andrew Jackson Hermitage in um, Nashville. Some of you are nodding your head. You, you may have been to the home site or the homestead of, of Andrew Jackson and kind of his refuge and where he uh, lived when he wasn't in in Washington, and so we went, and you're able to uh, to tour the grounds there and see the you know the old you know where because back in the day where the the slaves lived and what life was like for them, as well as the the house itself that Jackson lived in. It was an interesting side note that 90 um, percent of the furniture in that house, if you've ever if you ever had a chance to go, 90 percent of the furniture is a, is the uh, authentic genuine furniture that was there when Jackson lived there. It's the oldest, or the, the, the most extensive collection of, of antiquated and furniture. And so it was, not that I was really all that interested in the furniture, but it was a, kind of a, an interesting side note. And uh, so we were there. It was a day like yesterday was for us here. It wasn't quite that windy. It wasn't stormy like it was Friday night, but it was wet and it was rainy. And um, so you do a lot of outdoor walking and I got completely soaked, just covered, because I wanted to go see everything, and I accidentally left my umbrella. And um, Tony's, Tony's dying in the front row, because I didn't take an umbrella, I chose not to. You ever, you ever get punished, even as an adult, by other people? And they were all, I, I go, and I, was, I still was out there wanting to see everything, and I'm just soaked. And Tony and my, my in-laws, and they were all going inside, and they all carried their, their umbrellas inside with them rather than give it to me, because they were teaching me a lesson about um, not, not taking the umbrella. So I got soaked. But I, and I think I've shared this with you before. The part I really enjoyed, though, was, was the inside, the, the museum and the, the history. Uh, I've never been a huge fan of Andrew Jackson, not my favorite president, for a lot of reasons that have nothing to do with the sermon. But, um, but I, I didn't know a whole lot about it, so it was a chance for me to learn. And, and I've shared with you before, do you have people that you go... Um, to museums with that, that are slow, that read everything, that drive you crazy? Do you have those people? I'm that guy. That's me. And so I read everything, and I just want to take it all in. And one of the things that was interesting to me that I probably should have remembered from my American history, but I, I didn't remember as much, was that Andrew Jackson was really the first um, populist president. He was the first one elected based on a connection with... The, the common person. Uh, he was seen as, as a uh, kind of upending the, what had become the, the norm in the first few presidents of the United States that they were kind of the elitist educated from they were that upper class, wealthy class of, of, of people. Andrew Jackson, though he was quite wealthy, um, was seen more connected to uh, the common, common person of, of the day. And so if you, you type in um, if you Google it, who is the first president to connect to the common people, you're going to pull Andrew Jackson. That's usually what, what's going to pop up. And that was kind of how he got elected. He got elected on this idea that by electing me, something new is going to happen in American politics. Something is going to change that needs to change. And, and I don't know enough about 
presidential politics to say that he set the, the example, that it hadn't been done pr- prior to him. But I can say that after him, that became kind of the norm for the, the promise, the campaigning to be elected president was to, to convince the common person, us, that you're going to change things, that things aren't the way that they should be, I'm going to make them better or I'm going to make them different. And that need to bring something new. And so that becomes the pattern. In fact, in a hundred years after, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt gets elected on that promise. I'm going to do something, a new deal for the American people. And he uses, like Jackson had connected through his story to common people, you know, remember, remember, no, none of you remember, but you're from your history, that's a landmine, I was about to step right in, Um, but from history that that Roosevelt used a brand new media platform called radio, and he sat and he did the, what were they called? The fireside chats, right, and and the idea of connecting, but to to sell or to convince uh, the American people that I've got something new that's going to make things better. And so, and we can, we can carry that out. Well, that's nothing new in human history. Leaders and, and, and um, influencers have, have often said, things need to change and I'm going to do something new. And that hunger and that heart for that starts with a recognition that that's the example that God often gives us. That God steps into situations and circumstances in our lives and in our relationship and says that, that I'm going to, to do something new. And we see that refrain throughout Scripture. And we see it in Jeremiah. This morning we read from the prophet. Now Jeremiah uh, is often referred to as the weeping prophet. And he brings a message to the people in the midst of very difficult circumstances. If you want to think of that FDR example, you know, he's a prophet during the Depression. When things are not good for the, the southern kingdom of Judah and, and they're under the influence or under the thumb of a foreign power, which is Babylon. And the people have wandered far from God's will for their lives and they've paid a great price for it. And in the midst of all of this, God speaks words of hope and promise. And I'm just reading a small section of that from Jeremiah chapter 31. And we begin with verse 31. And this is what God speaks through his prophet. He says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. And there's our focus. I will put it in their minds, I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sin no more. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, that we would hear these words of of challenge and words of hope. That they would frame our understanding of, of who you are and who you call us to be. And that our spirits would be receptive, not just to the reading of your word, but to these words that are spoken. That they would be of your Holy Spirit. And that we would 
Allow your spirit to work within us. This is our prayer. We ask it in Christ Jesus. Amen. question for you. How many of you consider yourselves good law-abiding citizens? Raise your hand. Hold on. Wait. Keep them up. <laughs> I want evidence right here. Keep them up. Keep them up. Uh, who do I turn this into, Jimmy, so we can find who doesn't raise their hand? Uh, a lot of you are like, I'm not raising my hand because you don't trust me. But, um, <laughs> but I would think, looking at most of you, your faces that I know, that we would all say, we're good, law-abiding citizens. But, but I was thinking about that term. And, and really, if we had a chance to sit in a small group and talk about it, it'd be, it'd be fun to say, what does it mean to be a good, law-abiding citizen? What, what does that mean? If, if at least the majority of us consider ourselves that, um, what's the barometer? How do you measure that? How do you begin to say, I, I meet the, the requirements for that? Because part of the implication there is that we obey the law. And, and I think most of us would say, yeah, other than maybe an occasional speed limit, you know, we, we obey the law. But, you know, I, there was an article in uh, a newspaper a few years ago in Central Florida, and it talked about the excessive amount of laws in Florida. And in that year, there were f- almost 1,500 new laws introduced in addition to over 4,500 criminal statutes at that time. Now, here's what I'd venture to say. None of us know all those statutes. Even law enforcement doesn't know all those statutes, I think. I don't know, Jimmy's come up and go, no, I got them all memorized. Um, But but the idea is there's so many that, that I wonder where we might occasionally find ourselves even inadvertently breaking laws that we didn't know existed. Whether it be in, in our state or whether it be around the country, there are, there are laws that, that most people probably don't even realize exist. You know, like, there's a, years ago when we lived on a large family property with, with my in-laws, and, the, and Ryan and Cassie were little, my niece and nephew were little, um, my father-in-law decided that he would have them help him raise pigs. So they raised pigs. And I'd never been in an environment where we were raising pigs. And so what I learned very quickly is no, you don't throw food away when you have pigs. You feed it to them. They eat everything. They're, they're garbage disposals. Well, in Arkansas, it's illegal to do that if you don't have a permit. You cannot feed garbage to pigs if you don't have a permit for it. Now, I don't know if they enforce that law, but it's a law. And I wonder how many people in Arkansas break it. There are laws like that all around the country. Um, there's places where it's illegal to catch a fish with your bare hand. Now, I don't know how many people do that, but it's illegal to do it. There's laws that govern the way doors are allowed to be opened, how they're positioned for buildings. They have to open a certain way. Uh, There's laws that say how how long a bingo game is allowed to be played before it's breaking the law. Uh, In Massachusetts, you can't play in a public park. You can't play soccer in a public park on a Sunday afternoon if you don't have a permit. Now, personally, I don't think you should be able to play soccer in any park, any time. But that's a whole different thing. Um, but, but there's all kinds of crazy laws. There's all kinds of, of, of unique statutes and things that, that don't always make a, make a lot of sense. But nonetheless, they're actual laws. They're, they're rules. In Nicholas County, West Virginia, this is the one that caught my attention. Nicholas County, West Virginia. I don't even know in West Virginia that is. Some of you may know. But it is illegal. It is illegal for a 
preacher to tell a joke or a humorous story in a sermon? Just hook it up. So my, my point is that if, if our definition of law-abiding citizen is that we keep all the laws, eventually we're going to fall short. So, so is it about the perfection of execution, or would we say it's more about the intention of the heart? Would we not say that, that really, yes, because we've all, like we've joked about before, we've all sped before, we've done things we've gotten in trouble for probably, but, but our intention is to live in a good relationship with each other, to respect others. Our intention is to respect the law of the land and the officials and those in position over us. That, that the intention of our heart and, and our desire to live in obedience to, to, the, to the, the statutes and ordinance of the nation that we live in, that's why we consider ourselves a law-abiding citizen. And I would agree with that. I would agree with that. And that leads us into an understanding, I think, of what God is really doing here in, the, in his relationship with the people of, of Judah, which is the southern kingdom of, of Israel, and, and speaking through the prophet, and, and what God is inviting us into. Because the Jewish faith had so often been dominated by an understanding that to be a good Jew... You had to follow the law. You had to obey the laws. And in the Torah alone, the first five books of the Bible, there's 613 laws. Laws that governed every aspect of life. When you got up, what you wore, how you properly cleaned, how you cooked, when you ate, what you ate. Your relationship with your spouse, your relationship with your family, your relationship with your God, how you worshipped, when you worshipped, where you worshipped. I mean, it governed every aspect of life. And it had purpose and it had value. But you take that and, and you take the other laws that had been on top of that to help flesh that out. And, and you had this understanding that, that the goal of, of faith is to obey all the rules. And the problem was even the big stuff the people didn't do very well. I'm not talking about the minutiae. I'm talking about God's call to honor me. God's call to love me. God's call to be my people and I will be your God. God had said this over and over in the covenant. If you are faithful, if you are obedient, I will bless your land. I will bless you. And over and over again, they're not. And in the time of Jeremiah, they're at an all-time low. And it seems to be an incredibly hopeless situation until God steps in and he says, I'm going to do something new. Like, like a politician that says, things haven't been good, I'm going to make change. This is, this is change you can depend on. This is a change you can count on. This is a promise that we know is going to be kept. But, but God says, something's going to change. No longer is the faith going to be an external mandate of law, but it's going to be an internal motivation of love. I'm going to write my statutes. I'm going to imprint them on your minds. I'm going to write them on your heart. Jesus, our God, is, is pointing to us. He's pointing ahead to what we understand to be the, the work of Jesus that, that crystallizes for us that our faith, while, while, while laws and rules and, and holiness is what we call that, holiness is important. Do not walk out of here thinking that I'm saying that, that God's call to holiness isn't important. It doesn't matter. But, but what God calls us to is a holiness that is motivated not by desire to keep all the rules, but because of what God has done through our, 
and on our hearts because of what God has done in Jesus. Rather than just mentally imprint rules, Jesus has incarnationally shown us love, what God's love looks like. And the people in your life, the relationships in your life that have touched you, that have shaped you, the people that have spoken truth into your life that you've been receptive to, that have helped shape who you are, I guarantee it is because not of what they've said to you, but because of the way that they've blessed you, the way that they've touched you, because of what they've done to your heart. I, I, was, I was thinking about I, when I was in seminary, I had a, a, a church history professor, early church history, and it was 8 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, 8 a.m., uh, in a room that was incredibly too warm, terribly warm, um, for North Carolina mornings. And so it was a brutal class because you were constantly, you ever sat in a class that's too warm? You're just 8 a.m.? I mean, you're fighting the, the uh, you know, that kind of thing. And early church history uh, was not my favorite class. But, but she, Dr. Keefe was one of my absolute favorite professors. And let me tell you why. And she was universally loved. Because when we would take exams, she would go up into the chapel. And she would have a, she, what she would do is she would have a, a PhD student would proctor the exam. So she wasn't in the room with us, but she'd go up to the chapel. And we only knew this because other students would pass this down. She never told us she did this, but, but it was passed down that what she did is while we took exams, she got up in the chapel and she prayed for us one at a time by name. And she prayed. And we knew she, and she was a powerful woman of prayer, and we knew it. We always said that if any of us ever got in trouble and we needed one person praying for us, Dr. Keefe was who we wanted praying for us. Now, why do I remember her? Why will my life always be shaped by her? Did she teach good things? Of course. She was incredibly brilliant. But it wasn't the things that she imprinted here. It was the example that shaped me here. That's what, that's what God says. God says that, that what I'm doing is I'm writing something on your heart. I'm, I'm writing something in your heart because, because what has happened is that we've reduced, and, and the people of Israel and, and we have reduced faith to, to do's and don'ts. But our faith isn't about the laws we keep, but the relationship that drives us. It's not about doing all the right things, because the reality is we'll never do all the right things. We, we, we don't live into that very well. We may try, and I hope that we do. But, but the reality is when we begin to, to measure by God's expectations, we fall incredibly short. I mean, go back and read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Go back and read those words that Jesus speaks that you've probably heard before. Things like, turn the other cheek and love your enemy. Things that say, well, you may not have committed adultery, but if you've looked lustfully at somebody else, you've committed adultery. You may not have, have, have um, murdered your brother, but if you're angry, it's the same thing. Go back and read these things. The, read this, this, this calling that God gives us. This is who we're striving to be. This is who we see Jesus to be. And we're called into that example. And then ask yourself, how well do I do? And it has the tendency to become very depressing. Because we all know 
if this is God's expectation, we're, we're way down. If, if our faith is about doing all the right things and keeping all the right rules, man, we'll never get there. And here's the thing, and Philip Yancey talks about this in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. He said, the truth is God's expectation is so high that we can never reach it. But God's grace is so real that we don't have to. God's grace is so real that now it doesn't, it doesn't excuse us. This isn't a get out of jail card free and go do whatever you want. But it's to say that God's grace is what begins to shape us. And when God's grace grabs hold of us, when, when we allow God's love to be written upon our hearts, we, we get out of this, this faith-driven mindset or, or law-driven mindset that says I have to do everything right. And, and we get out of these, these silly scenarios. We, we, we kind of laugh sometimes. And, and I've talked before about that there were different kind of Pharisees uh, throughout the Jewish tradition. And one of the, the subgroups and kind of nicknames, one, of the Pharise- uh, one group of Pharisees got was the um, bleeding and bruised Pharisees. And they, they were the bleeding and bruised Pharisees. And a number of pastors and writers have talked about this because they were so consumed with not committing adultery, that they didn't even want to be accused of anything inappropriate. So they, whenever they saw a woman, or if a woman was coming, they would either turn their eyes down or they would close their eyes. And so that they would not stumble into sin. The problem was they stumbled into everything else. So they became bleeding and bruised Pharisees because they'd walk into walls, and they'd, walk, they'd stumble off of things, and they'd fall. And it sounds silly, but, but that's where the... the, the, the the progression of my faith is about keeping all the right rules, doing all the right things is going to lead us. There was another called the accounting Pharisees, and they would keep a log. And their goal was that they would write down every good thing they did and every bad thing they did. And they wanted their good things to outnumber their bad things. Now, that's a good goal. That is a good thing. We should all want our good um, acts to outweigh our bad ones. But when it becomes the, the criteria of faith and faithfulness, we're all going to fall short of that. And so God says that the day is coming, this new covenant will be written on their hearts and will be based on this promise that God says. Because remember, Jeremiah is speaking to people that have been terribly unfaithful, terribly disobedient, and have suffered great for it. And the last thing of that section that is written, it says, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. What imprints on the heart is God's grace. What imprints on the heart is this promise that God gives us that I will forgive and that you are covered in and through and by my grace. Brothers and sisters, that's the heart of faith. It's, it's a heart, it's, it's what had been written on stone tablets becomes written on the heart. What had been a, a, a faith of law becomes a faith of grace. What had been one of fear becomes one of faith. And that's what we're called to. That's, that's God's promise. That's, that's what drives us. And too often we've just carried this weight of, of our mistakes. We, we've carried the weight of I've, I've not measured up, I've not been good enough. How could God love me because? And God says, I do love you because I gave my life for you. Because I've written a new co- covenant. Because I've done a new thing. And I will remember your sins no more through the faith that you have in the one who's given himself for you. That, that becomes our promise. That becomes 
our opportunity to release this, this notion that somehow we've got to earn what God has given rather than receive this gift of what God has given to us. You know, there was two other pharisaical groups. One were called the Pharisees of fear. And they were driven by an anxiety of God's wrath. They were afraid of God. And then there was one, the, the group called the Pharisees of love. And they were driven by an understanding of God's love. They believed that's where Paul fit. Well, that, that's who we're, we're called to be. And, and I struggled with this this week. I struggled with this message and, and really the, the, the application of it. You know, how many of us are really there? And then, then I had a conversation in my office this week with uh, somebody in the church. And, and um, I asked him permission to, to just share some of that. But he was telling me his story as a child growing up in a church that indoctrinated fear. That indoctrinated fear. Maybe that was your experience. If you don't repent, you're going to hell. If you don't do behave right, act right, speak right, do right, every week it was repent or you will go to hell. It's what we call turn or burn kind of messages. Now, I don't deny that we need to take God's judgment seriously. But, but what troubles me is the weight that I think Jesus came to relieve that gets piled back on us because we, we all fall short. And, and Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that when he calls people to faith. You notice that? He, he, doesn't thre- he, he has the harshest words to say for the religious elite. I've said uh, that, that's who he is, is hard on. But, but when he comes to the, to the home or to the village of a tax collector who's taken advantage of his own people and he sees him up in a tree, he doesn't judge him, he doesn't condemn him, he doesn't tell him, repent or you're going to hell. He says, wait a minute, you know what? Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm going to come have dinner with you. I'm going to come eat with you tonight. And when he stands in front of a, a woman who's been caught in adultery, he didn't turn and condemn her. He shows her grace. In fact, he challenges the others who are without sin. You go ahead and throw the stone. And of course, none do. And then he calls her to new life, but not based out of judgment and condemnation, but out of grace and, and love. And over and over, that's what Jesus does. He calls us to holiness but not because of fear, but because of faith. Brothers and sisters, that's the invitation we have. That's what Jesus writes on our hearts. And I think just some of us just need to let go of the fear. I think some of us just need to let go of that that fear that somehow God's here to get us. And if we fall short, oh, the price we'll pay. Here's the truth. You will fall short. We all do. But for by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. We didn't earn it. It's God's gift. So none of us can be cocky. None of us can boast. That's what God writes on our hearts. And I pray that that's the faith. That's the relationship that moves you to obedience and to holiness. Recognizing that God's done a new thing. And that new thing is good news for all of us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we, we come just before you with gratitude. Because we, we don't come of our own worthiness, but we come of your love. You, you have made us worthy. You have 
freely offered us forgiveness. You've written your love upon our hearts, and, and that shapes us. And that begins to drive us to obedience and to living that love for, with others and before others. And so let that be the motivator of faith. Let that be the new thing that you have promised that we cling to. And let that be the faith that drives us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.